Hello everybody and welcome to another edition of Simplifying the Sword. This week we read the Perasha of Shoftim. Uh, this morning we began reading Sedichot and we begin the road with Elul towards uh, Tishuvan coming towards uh, Rosh Hashanah. I want to continue following the advice of Rav Darmoni to focus on thoughts of self-improvement as we move through Elul towards Rosh Hashanah and the Yamim Noraim. I also invite all of you to go back to previously posted classes on Shoftim. Uh, last summer, we, when we first started the podcast, we, fo- we, we posted two very, very interesting classes that very few people listened to because it was the beginning of the podcast. So if you go back into the uh, show history, look at all shows, and then scroll down, you'll come to Shoftim. Uh, one class was an amazing class about the concept of shalom. It's all about connecting and understanding shalom. And then in that class, we had mentioned Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon, and the daughter of Paro. And what happened was, because of that mention, we got a whole bunch of questions. And later that week, we posted a whole nother class on the idea of Shlomo HaMelech and the daughter of Paro. So please, if you have a chance, please uh, scroll down through the old shows and you'll come back to that and you'll be able to listen to those two amazing classes. Uh, so we're, we're looking here again, like we said, on, on thoughts of self-improvement and seeing how that... Uh... So we begin. The Torah, Moshe Rabbeinu, is telling us, uh, remember we said the first few parashiyot, Moshe was rehashing the old history. Now, these parashiyot, he's giving advice for B'nai Israel moving forward. He's telling them that they must appoint judges, shoftim v'shotrim, and police officers. Titen point for yourselves, bechol she'arecha. Now we, we generally translate this bechol she'arecha in all of your cities. But the, the fact is that the word she'arecha really translates into gates. And we ask, why would the Moshe Rabbeinu use the word gates instead of the word cities? The use of the word gates is analyzed by many of our mefashim. The Sifteh Kohen teaches, this verse can be interpreted to refer to the gates of the body. What are the gates of the body? He explains the seven orifices, the, which are a conduit to four of the five senses. We have our two ears, which hear, two eyes, which see, two nostrils, which smell, and a mouth through which external stimuli enter our consciousness. So what he's saying is we're bidden to station judges and sheriffs to guard against these gates so that we're not invaded by pernicious entities that could be detrimental to our spiritual health and integrity. The Shalach Kadosh uh, in his Sefer Shneel Chotabidi explains that those bodily gates of entry need both officers and judges who are constantly on guard to ensure that only the right matter is absorbed. Rabbi Abitan Zechus Sadiq Livracha, he would expand on this and he would say, you know, we have these guards to defend on what comes in. He said, but specifically when it comes to the mouth, we often have to be much more worried with uh, what goes out. We need to guard what goes out rather than to worry so much about what comes in. And he would say a French proverb, I'll try it, il faut tourner cette fois sa langue dans sa bouche avant de parler, which basically means turn the tongue seven times in your mouth before speaking. 
And really the rabbi is saying you should think long and hard before you speak. You should count to 10 before you speak. All of these ideas. You should take time to think about what you're going to say before you, you, you come out and say it. We have to understand that we have a tremendous impact on other people. I want to share with you a story I heard from uh, Rabbi Ephraim Shapiro. Rabbi Ephraim Shapiro is the rabbi of the, uh, the synagogue in North Miami Beach on 171st Street. Those of us who go to Aventura definitely come across him and, and, and the people from his synagogue. So the rabbi said that he was uh, out to dinner with his wife and uh, in a nice restaurant. And uh, as they sat at dinner... Uh, on another table, he noticed there were, uh, they both noticed, there were a bunch of uh, tourists, very well-dressed, dressed to the nines, dripping with jewelry. Women looked like they were from South America, speaking to each other in Spanish, but then they're speaking to the waiter in Hebrew. And they are complaining about everything. The fish comes out, and they look at the fish, and they tell the waiter, you think this is fish? In our country, they really know how to how to serve fish, where do you get the fish from, from the can, instead of getting fish from the sea, where in Florida, how could you not get fish from the sea, what's going on here, it's terrible. And then the, the pizza comes out, and you say, this is a crust, it feels like it's a piece of cardboard, doesn't anyone know here how to cook anything, doesn't anyone know how to make anything, and you think this is cheese, what kind of cheese is this, what did they take, the American cheese and the in the, the thing and stick it on. How could you work in this place? It's horrible, it's horrible. And they just kept going and going and going and going. And the poor guy did whatever he could, ran back and forth to the kitchen, tried to do whatever he could to satisfy them. But they just didn't stop. And even when they got up to leave, they continued to abuse him. How do you work in this place? You're the worst, the weight is the worst, the weight's the worst, the house is the worst, the decoration's the worst, and everything was the worst. And this guy just kept a smile on the whole time. And after they walked out, the rabbi turned to his wife and he said, you know, could you believe what you just saw? And she turns to her husband and she says, honey, you always make these speeches about someone who's embarrassed in public and is able to hold his tongue and how we should run after that person and get a blessing from him. You should get a blessing, call him over. And he says, no, but honey, he's not religious. What do you mean? He goes, listen, I heard that speech 25 times. Come on, do what you say. So he says, you know what? You're right. And he calls the guy over, you know, excuse me, sir. Uh, can I ask you a favor? He says, could you please, uh, you should bless me and my, and my wife. Give us a blessing. And this waiter looks at the rabbi and says, rabbi, what are you doing? Everybody walks over to your table, says, hello, rabbi, you must be a very important rabbi. You're asking me to bless you? You saw what I just went through. You're making more fun of me? You think I, I, I didn't get enough from those ladies? You're giving me more? And he says, no, 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 I promise I'm not. He says, there's a concept that if someone is embarrassed in public and someone is able to control themselves and not respond and not get upset and not turn to those people, then that person reached a very, very high level and that person has the ability to bless and my wife and I are in definite need of something. So we're sitting here asking you, please give us a blessing of such and such. So the man says, Rabbi, if that's what you want, no problem. So he gives him the blessing and they continue, they complete the meal, they pay the bill, they give him a nice tip and they're leaving the restaurant. And as they're leaving the restaurant, the waiter runs up and grabs the rabbi by his sleeve and says, Rabbi, Rabbi. He says, yeah, yeah, what? 
He goes, could you give me your phone number? He goes, yeah, of course, I'll give you my phone number. He says, give me a paper. He takes a paper, he writes his phone number and hands it to him. He says, well, what do you need my phone number for? He says, you know what? I'm thinking maybe you'll set me up with someone locally that I could learn with. And uh, the rabbi looks at him and says, what? He said, uh, you know, I, I was a young boy and I was in yeshiva and my, my home life, I ran away. And when I ran away, I gave up everything. And I lived a completely irreligious life. I married a woman and we're both not religious and she came from Argentina and never learned anything. And, and I just saw and realized that I'm missing so much. I saw how you behave towards me and I realized I'm missing that. And I wanna try to learn a little and reconnect with what I lost. The rabbi continues and says that this guy went on to learn and he became, he and his wife became pillars of the, of the North Miami community. And you think, it's unbelievable. This rabbi didn't go into that restaurant to make anyone observant. He just witnessed something and he asked for a blessing and he did it in a way. And he was asking for a blessing for himself and his wife that he needed something, but he asked in such a way that he had an impact on this person's life and that would change that person's life and change the community forever. The rabbis tell us, Kol al anyone who is uh, merciful on creation, alav min they are merciful from him from heaven. I heard Rabbi Ari Mizrahi quoted Rabbi Chaim Shmuel Levitz. He says, you know, we assume in this world, we're always taught in this world that everything is midah, kenege midah. We do something and, and, and it comes back to us based on what we did. You know, remember the whole idea of Paro. Paro was saying that uh, he could never be punished midah, kenege midah. He was punishing the babies by throwing them into the water and he said, look, Hashem promised he would never bring a flood to destroy people. And in the end, what did Yitro hear? Yitro heard about the the killing of Mitzrayim at the sea. And Yitro, who was there with Paro, heard Paro saying, Hashem's never going to get me with the water. He promised not to go after anyone with the water. And there Yitro sees that Hashem punished Midah Kenege Midah. Everything in this world we learn from the rabbis, Midah Kenege Midah. So Rabbi Chaim Shemulevit says, it's, it's not so simple. Maybe it's not always tit for tat. So we see last week's parasha, very strange passage, difficult one to, to understand, a little difficult to, to say, did this really ever happen? And the, uh, the pasuk says, Ki tishma be'achat arecha asher adonai lehecha noten lecha l'shevet sham lemor. If you hear in one of the cities that Hashem has given you in the land, it says, people went out, they were scoundrels from among you. And what did they do? They subverted the inhabitants, telling them, come, let's worship Avodazara, other gods that you have not known. Come, let's go after the dark side. We're going to show that if you go after the dark side, you're going to get all of the things that you always wanted. You're going to toss this yoke of heaven off of your shoulders. And life is going to be amazing. 
And what happens? Vedarashta, you go out and you find and you search and you ask very well. You do a deep interrogation, you do a deep investigation. And this, it's true. It really happened. This terrible thing happened among you. Torah commands you, You have to go out and kill all the inhabitants of the city with a sword. You have to doom it. And all that's within it, including the cattle, and all the spoils, you should gather to the center of town, to the square, you're going to burn the city down. All the spoils. And it's going to be for you an everlasting ruin. You're not going to build there again. This is the key And there should not remain, there should be nothing remain from the, from the doomed in order that Hashem should return from His anger. And Hashem will show you compassion. And it goes further. Hashem is going to be increasing in compassion, increasing you. That He promised to your forefathers. Hashem is promising to a person who's ready to kill an entire city, what am I going to show you? Compassion. And it seems to be the opposite of midah keneged midah. You're going to go kill, and as a reward for killing, you're going to be shown compassion. Laura Chaim HaKadosh writes, this is the intention of the section. According to the commandment of the ir nidach at the city that rejected Hashem, the whole city is going to be killed, even the animals. And what's going to happen? A person who kills, the act is going to give rise to a nature of cruelty in the heart of the man. And he quotes based on the Ishmaelim. You know, the Ishmaelim say, you know, what do you expect from us? We kill, we kill. That becomes our nature, becomes second nature. Because they're used to killing, they become desensitized. Now Rabbi Abitan would always quote from Sefer HaChinuch. He would say, Ki It's known the thing and truthful. Shekol ha'adam, that every person, nif'al, he goes, kefi pe'ulotav, according to his actions. According to his actions, the example that he would give was an executioner. You take a guy, a regular guy, and he becomes the city executioner. And every week, there's execution, boom, he cuts off somebody's head. After a while, this, this aspect of killing becomes part of him. And, you know, we have to really be afraid because, you know, I, 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 my, my son sent a picture last night of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of what's called of a Jurassic Park game. And I, I was telling them in, in the synagogue on, uh, on Shabbat, that when, when my son was a kid, we used to go out to this amusement park and we used to play uh, a shooting game with dinosaurs. And, you know, it was, we were killing dinosaurs. But today, it's very scary. Kids can put on these, these Oculus headsets and they enter into a world 
they put on these uh, sensors on their arms, on their legs, and they can see their avatar, 3D avatar in this world. And when they enter in this world, they're going out and they become killing machines. And they kill and they kill and they kill and they kill. And how could you not think that a kid who's spending hours every single day immersed in this other world and if you, if you tried it, you know what I mean. And if you never tried it, you really have to imagine that someone is entering in another world. How do we not think that this, this, these games will not have a tremendous behavioral effect on, on the children? We have to be very, very, very careful. So with this in mind, the Ora Chaim is saying, look, these people... They're going to be desensitized from killing. What happens? He says that, look, Hashem is promising them that He's going to give them mercy even though nature will give birth to cruelty. The source of mercy, which is Hashem, will affect the power of mercy within a person to negate the cruelty that was born by virtue of the act of killing the people in the Ir Nidachet. And it says about the city, as long as man has a cruel nature, Hashem will behave with him the same way. That Hashem is not merciful on the cruel nature of man, but you see that Hashem could be compassionate. Rabbi Shmulevitz, Rabbi Shmulevitz continues, because you followed the command in thus. Further quoting the Ora Chaim HaKadosh, she says the Torah adds once more, you're going to, you're, we're going to increase the mercy. Hashem is going to help us to overcome the negative character trait that would develop from the killing by giving us this extra mercy. And the, the Pasuk continues, Ki tishma Hashem because you listen to Hashem to watch Nature dictates that if you act without mercy, it will become your nature unless Hashem changes that and instills in you mercy and thus Hashem will act mercifully towards you. So we ask the question in the synagogue, where do we see this? My friend Leon jumped and says, you see it in Pinhas. He says, look, Pinhas kills Zimri. Now we see it. Zimri, big guy, you know, he's going against, jumps in to do what he does. But Hashem has to jump in immediately. And he gives to Pinhas a brit shalom, a covenant of peace. It seems there that Hashem is giving Pinhas some level of an antidote because Pinhas had killed, that he's going to take away the danger that comes from killing and give him an antidote. We see also the halakha that if a Kohen kills, he can't go up and do Bikat Kohanim. It, it affects a person's nature in a way that makes things very, very difficult. And therefore, therefore, we have to remember that when, 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 when we do something, we need that antidote. There's a story with Rabbi Eliezer. There's no rain, led to famine. He prays the Amidah. He adds six extra blessings. They say, we have the Shemona Esrei and six extra blessings for 24 blessings. And nothing happens. Please, Hashem, send rain. Please, Hashem, send rain. Praying and praying and praying and praying. Nothing. 
Rabbi Akiva gets up and he says, Avinu Malkinu, and all of a sudden, the heavens open up. And everyone's shocked. He said two words, how great is Rabbi Akiva? Look, look, look. And all of a sudden, the people are saying that Rabbi Akiva is this and Rabbi Elias is that. And as uh, Rabbi Mizrahi explains us that uh, why did the heavens open up for Rabbi Akiva? So the, 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 the Bat Kol comes out and says that both of them are the same. Both Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Eliezer, they both have the same level of greatness. But one foregoes his honor. One doesn't make a big production. One lets things slide. And we see there how Hashem values this and therefore He rewards this with the, with the mercy of rain. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter asks a question. How do we understand? How do we understand? One guy's praying all day, the other guy says two words. How could heaven say they're equal, but one is more forgiving? That means they're not equal. So the question is, are they equal? Well, they're not equal. How could there be no difference? And the rabbis explained that Rabbi Eliezer was from the academy of Bet Shammai. And we know the house of Bet Shammai is strict and tough, but we have to remember who was Bet Shammai, what was Shammai's position. He was the Av Betin, he was the judge. And a judge has to be blind. And a judge has to execute judgment. But who was Hillel? Hillel was the Nasi. He was the president. He was able to make exceptions. He was able to pardon. So they're really equal, but one comes from one school, one comes from the other. Elu ve'elu. Both of these are... But the difference is that one's prayer is answered even if he's undeserving. Now we think back to the word Ba'it Hanan. Ba'it Hanan is Moshe Rabbeinu is praying to Hashem to give me something that I don't deserve. Atahonen. We don't deserve and Hashem gives us. So here we have that, that they're both the same. And even though Rabbi Akiva on the hand did not deserve but Hashem, because He's one who's willing to give for nothing, He's willing to be the same honen to other people, Hashem is being honen to Him. And the secret is, you want Hashem to act with midat hadin, then you act with midat hadin. If you want Hashem to have mercy, you have to have mercy. You know, so often, we said last week, re'er anochi noten lefnechem hayom klala, Moshe is saying, I'm placing in front of you blessing and curse. The choice of blessing and curse is in our hands. Hashem will act to us as we act to others. You want to see Hashem acting? Look in the mirror. What you see in the mirror is how Hashem is going to behave towards you. The Gemara and Rosh Hashanah teaches us, Rava understood, anyone who is uh, forgiving for passing Allowing on his, on his, uh, his, his, his own honor, so to say, we pass on all of his iniquities. Whoever forgives his own reckonings and others for injustices done for him, the court in Shamayim in turn forgoes punishment for all his sins. The Gemara in Yoma tells us, look at Rabbi Zerah. When he had a complaint against the person who insulted him, he would walk back and forth 
before that person and present himself so that that person could come and appease him. Rabbi Zerah made himself available so that it would be easy for the other person to apologize to him. It's further related that Rav, he had a complaint against a certain butcher. The butcher insulted him. And the butcher didn't come a whole year to apologize to Rav. So what happened on Yom Kippur Eve? Rav said, I'm going to go and appease him. A few weeks ago, someone came to me and asked me about the behavior of another person. He says, what do you do? That person now is, was so angry for the, for the longest time and now that person is smiling and happy. I said, I went to the person and apologized. And the person came to me and said, but you didn't need to apologize. I said, you and I think that, but that person thought that I did something to them. So what did it hurt me to go and apologize and allow that person to accept the apology and get rid of all of that anger that was buried inside of them? Shulchan Aruch tells us that a person should appease his friend on the eve of Yom Kippur. Because as we know, Yom Kippur does not atone for sins between man and man. And even if a person only angered the other person with words, he's required to appease him. And if at first the person is not pacified, he has to return and go to him a second time and a third time. And not so simple, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I asked you three times, forgive me. Each time he's supposed to take three men with him to make it a public an apology. And it has to be sincere. And it has to be three different times. And if he doesn't become reconciled, if the person doesn't accept the apology, enough. But there are certain apologies that the rabbis explain that a person doesn't even have to accept the apology. Although we should all, we should all go out of our way to try to accept an apology. And the question is, what does it mean to appease his friend? And how far must the person go? The scariest story, I think, is from the Navi, the Gemara, and the Midrash. We've seen the Gemara Sanhedrin. Rava said, The king of Babel, he sent his chief general, Nebuzaradan. And with him, he sent 300 mules. And on each mule, it was filled with special iron axes that were designed to break through iron. But when they came to the gates of Jerusalem, every one of those axes shattered. So Nevuzar Adan is ready to retreat. He was afraid that just like Sanchariv, who tried to destroy, was killed before him, he too would be killed. And the Gemara says at that time, a batkol, a heavenly voice, came out and said, that the time for the sanctuary to be destroyed and for the temple to be burnt has come. And Nebuzar Adan had only one axe left. So he went and he struck the gate and it opened. And as he came through the city, he's killing the Yudim left and right. He reaches the Bet, the, the Bet HaMikdash, the temple, and he sets it on fire. And he's so happy that he accomplished this. But again, a bat called and came down and said, Nebuzaradan, you killed people who were already dead. 
you burn down a building that was already burnt. Entering into the courtyard of the Bet HaMikdash, he saw blood on the ground. And the blood seemed to be bubbling. And he demanded of the Kohanim to know, what, what is this? What is this phenomenon? And they said, no, it's simply the blood of sacrifices which was spilled. He then told them to bring some animal blood so he can compare. And he saw it was different. And then he threatened them that he would skin them alive if they didn't tell him the truth. Finally, the Kohanim told him that this was the blood of a Kohen, of a priest, a priest who was a prophet. And this prophet foretold the destruction of Yerushalayim to Bnei Israel. And for that, they killed him. Who was the Navi? Who was the Navi Zechariah? So Nebuzaradan wanted to pacify the blood. The blood is boiling because it wants vengeance, because it was taken, it was killed for preaching the word of Hashem. So he brought over the Chachamim, those who should have pressed the people to listen, he said. And he killed them on top of the blood and he poured their blood on that blood. Yet the blood continued to boil. He brought children, still it didn't rest. He brought young Kohanim, killed them over it, still it did not rest. And the Gemara says he went so far as to take 940,000 people and slaughter them over the blood. And still it didn't rest. And finally Nebuzaradan cried out, Zechariah, Zechariah, I have destroyed the worthy among them. Do you want me to kill them all? At that time the blood rested. And then Nebuzaradan stood there in shock. And he said, If they who killed one person only have been so severely punished, what will be my fate? What will be the fate of Nebuzaradan? <coughs> so he fled his army. And the Gemara tells us he converted. It's interesting. We hear he converted. Nero converted. The descendant of Nero will be Rav Meir, Baal Hanes. Interesting. Look, the blood wasn't satisfied. The blood needed to be atoned. But we don't have to go so far back in time. There's a story I heard recently that took place 40 years ago. A couple married with children kept having trouble when each of their sons turned eight or nine years old. Rahman al-Salam, the first son, he turned that age and he got sick. And the second son... He turned that age and he started having tremendous trouble in school. The third son, he turned that age and he rebelled against the religion. Told his parents, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. 
and the parents just don't know what's going on. And the father goes to see his rabbi and he says, listen, look at what's happening. One, two, three. What did I do? What's going on? And the rabbi said, you know the truth? I, I have no idea. So the man, he went to Eretz Yisrael. He went to see the Gadol Hador, the stipler. And he told the rabbi what was going on. And the rabbi suggested, you must have done something to a boy who was eight or nine years old. You need to fix that in order for this to fix. And the man said, Rabbi, I have no recall, no idea what it could have been. So the rabbi told him to think about it, and when he got back to America, he spoke to his wife about it, they talked about it, and then he realized that when he first got married, there was a school whose teacher from the fourth grade left a few weeks before the end of the year. So this man was asked by the head of the school to basically babysit this class for the last few weeks of school so that they would have someone to have a teacher of some sort so the semester could end. And the next year they'd get a new teacher. And this man told the principal, listen, you know me. I have no experience as an educator. I have no, 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 no teaching on how to teach. I never learned to be a teacher. What do you expect me to do? And he said, no, just be a babysitter. Fourth grade boys, what's going to happen? And so he came in and he had in his mind that he's going to try to teach these kids. And what happened? The boys were wild, but there was a wild among them was one boy in particular. And this boy wanted to show how he was in charge and it was his class. So the rabbi thought, this young rabbi thought, he said, well, what am I going to do? If I put this guy in his place, the rest will follow. So he embarrassed him on the one day and embarrassed him again that day and embarrassed him the next day and pushed him again the next day and pressed him and embarrassed him the third day and pressed him and embarrassed him the fourth day and finally this kid broke. The kid broke and he gave in and he behaved and the rest of them fell in line with him. So he figured this kid must be the reason that all this is happening to him. So the next day he was able to locate one of the boys from that class. And he, he said to the boy, you remember me? And the boy said, of course I remember you. You were a teacher the last month of fourth grade. You were the best. We had the best time. We just had fun. And he said to him, do you remember such and such a boy in the class? He goes, yeah, of course. He said, you know, that boy had a lot of problems going through school. And when he got married, he had a lot of problems. He goes, well, you know where he lives? He goes, yeah, he lives two blocks away. And so this, this man comes to the boy's house, who's no longer a boy, let's call him Reuven. And he knocks on the door. And Reuven's wife answers the door and says, can I help you? He says, is Reuven home? I, I would like to speak to him if I can. And Reuven comes out. And he says to him, hi, my name is, do you remember me? And he says, of course I remember you. You were our teacher in fourth grade. And he says, you know, I came here to apologize. I wasn't experienced, I had no idea what I was doing. And, and I, I, I definitely embarrassed you. He said, embarrassed me? Embarrassed me? You can't even imagine how much you embarrassed me. You can't even imagine the toll it took.
and he closed, started to close the door. And the rabbi said, no, 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 please, I'm here to beg your, beg your forgiveness. Please, I beg you, I apologize. Please give me forgiveness. And the boy says, Rabbi, you don't understand. You don't understand what you did to me. After that, I was a broken person. I went into therapy. Even when I got married, my marriage was affected by it. My first kids were affected by it. And only because I pushed myself so much in therapy was I able to have some level of existence and bring peace to my marriage and raising my children. Rabbi, I'll never forgive you. Goodbye. And he closed the door on him. And the rabbi, thinking about his kids, is sitting there at that moment. Tears are pouring down his eyes. What am I going to do? And he sat on the threshold, on the, on the porch, on the steps for, for 45 minutes. And 45 minutes later, this Reuben comes out to go somewhere and he sees the rabbi sitting on the steps crying. And he says, you've been here the whole time. He says, I see you're very, very serious to apologize. But this seriousness, you have to translate into an apology. You embarrassed me in front of 22 kids in that class. If you gather those 22 together and apologize in front of those 22, I will forgive you. And so this man left the house, went to his own house, and he, with the help of one of the students from that class, was able to track down all of the boys. The majority of them were living in Brooklyn in the neighborhood, few of them in the surrounding area. There were four of them who were learning out of town throughout the country. And there were a few of them who had moved to Eretz Israel and were learning in Israel. And he said, you know, I have to figure out how to bring them all together. And he made a cheshbon, an accounting. And he figured it's going to cost them $25,000 to bring them all together and to be able to have them in a place where he could apologize. And he went to his rabbi and he says, Rabbi, do I really have to do this, spend $25,000 to bring all these together? And the rabbi said, I have no idea. You're following the advice of the stipler, go ask the stipler. So he asked one of his friends who was in B'nai Brach to go see the stipler and ask him the question. The stipler said, let me ask you a question. If God forbid you were driving down the road and you were going a little fast and a kid jumped out and God forbid you hit the kid with your car and the kid died. And now you have to go to court because the question is, were you speeding? Was it your fault or was it an accident? And if it was your fault, you're going to end up going to jail for 10 years for manslaughter. And people are telling you, you should use this lawyer, that lawyer, and you meet a lawyer and the lawyer says, my fee is $25,000, but I'll get you off because it was an accident. Would you pay the $25,000 or take a chance to go to jail for 10 years? And I think that was the answer. <clears throat> he says, you'll gladly pay the money. He says, this is no different. 
You would imagine that in heaven after 120 years, this is not going to come up. You best do what you have to do. And so he went ahead. He gathered everyone together. And in front of everyone, he pleaded his forgiveness and was forgiven. And all of a sudden, things in his life changed. Changed so much for the better. We see from here that we can't ignore things. We see from the story that the people were upset with the words of the Navi Zechariah. And he was murdered in the, in the, in the courtyard of the Beth HaMikdash. His blood would not rest, it continued to boil. We have to think if there are things that we have done that would not rest until they're taken care of. Is there anyone's blood, so to say, that we have spilled that needs to be taken care of? This is the work for the month of Elul. We have to think about this. We have to think of who did we hurt and who do we not even realize we hurt, but they perceive that we hurt them. We have to go out. We have to make amends because, like we said, Yom Kippur cannot be mechaper, the sins between man and man. You know, it's interesting that it really depends on what happened. There are things that we can find very, very hard to ever forgive. And we hold things on. But when we do that, those things can make us very, very, very sick. It's very hard even to run to try to apologize to someone else. I want to close with one more, one more short story from the Gemara. And really, when you think about this, it helps you to understand. Towards the end of the Gemara and Yoma, there's a stories about people asking for forgiveness from one another. The stories are candid, they're emotional. I saw a write-up from a Rabbanit, Billy Robinstein, She's uh, from Midrashat Lindzenbaum. And there's a story about Rabbi Yirmiyah and Rabbi Abba. Rabbi Yirmiyah insulted Rabbi Abba. And Rabbi Abba had a complaint against Rabbi Yirmiyah. What happened? Rabbi Yirmiyah went to apologize. He got to the threshold of Rabbi Abba's house, the front step, to beg him forgiveness, but he couldn't proceed. What does that mean? He knew he did something. He knew he had to apologize. And what did he do? He went and made the effort to go to the house, but he just couldn't do it. He couldn't step beyond the threshold. He was unable to take another step. And she asked, why is it so hard to ask for forgiveness? Because when we ask for forgiveness, we have to acknowledge our own weaknesses. The act itself is a clear-cut expression of our failings. And this is why we find it so demanding and difficult. By asking for forgiveness, we are also acknowledging how much we need other people. And this too is extremely, extremely difficult. The state of being needy is a difficult emotional state to be in. And it's all the more difficult when asking for forgiveness. In this case, we're needy towards the same people who saw us at our weakest state. This is really this short story in the Gemara. He went and he sat on the threshold of Rabbi Abba's house. 
we see the complexity in trying to ask for forgiveness. But the story continues. He collapses on the doorstep. He's sitting there. And what happens? Things take a turn. Rabbi Abba's maid, what did she do? She poured out dirty water from the house. And the stream of water landed on Rabbi Yirmiya's head. He said about himself, he quoted a pasuk, that they made me into a trash heap. And quotes the verse, he says, Hashem who lifts the needy out of the trash heap. And we see it's interesting because the name Yirmiya is Yarim Yah, lifts up, Hashem lifted from the trash heap. Now what happens is Rabbi Abbas sees, oh my gosh, the housekeeper poured, poured dirty water from the, from, the, from the bathroom on his head. He ran out to apologize. And once he runs out to apologize, they sort of become equal. And they're able to communicate with each other. They're able to seek a peaceful resolution to what it is. How many times in my life do I see people fighting over the simplest thing? You know, we joke in my house from the movie uh, Avalon. There was a movie, Avalon. And we joke about a line, you cut the toiki without me. What is it? There's two brothers. They love each other. They work with each other. They take care of each other. And every year they come to spend Thanksgiving with each other. And they make sure that they're going to have Thanksgiving together. And one year, one of the brothers was late. And so all of the kids in the house are saying, Dad, it's time to cut the turkey. He says, no, I got to wait for my brother. And they press him and they press him. And finally, he cuts the turkey. Ten minutes later, his brother walks in and he sees, you cut the toiki without me? You cut the toiki without me? And with that, he walks out. And that's it. The relationship is over. How many people do we see end their relationship? How many brothers? How many sisters? How many relatives fight over what we would perceive to be nonsense just because they can't get through to ask for forgiveness and they can't give forgiveness? And one of the things we have to realize is that the person who doesn't give forgiveness, he's going to suffer as much as the other person or more because it builds up within him. The act of giving forgiveness can change us and make us so much better and so much stronger and relieve so much of the anxiety and the pressure that we feel. Bezrat Hashem, we're into this period now. We're going to ask Hashem for forgiveness. And every day when we go to sleep, we say, you know, I forgive everyone. It's really not so easy, but it's something we have to push ourselves to try to do. We should be willing to go and ask forgiveness. We should be willing to go and give forgiveness. Bezrat Hashem will do that. Bezrat Hashem, we will have a good and happy and healthy year. And Hashem will forgive us all of our iniquities. And He will bless us with a year of health and happiness, peace and prosperity. To school, the Shanim, Rabot, Neimot, Betovot, Shabbat Shalom, everyone.